Hello. Hey, John. How are you doing? Hi there, Dan Benjamin. What's going on on our way up there? How's the weather? Is it cooled down any? That's the main thing we got to worry about. Oh, it's very cool. It's uh, it's your typical Seattle now. It's 68 degrees with oh. a light breeze off the ocean. That's perfect. That's what yeah, everyone, this else, is what, everyone else wants that all year round. <laughs> this is what Seattle summers used to be. Uh, and the last five years, we haven't we haven't really gotten it. So it's pretty good. Pretty good in July to be 68 degrees. Yeah, no kidding. Although my daughter had swim practice this morning. But, you know, young people don't have feelings. So uh, they can swim. In, oh, you know, it's 61 degrees right oh. now. <laughs> And she, you know, she got out of the pool and I'm like, if I got out of a swimming pool and it was 61 degrees, I would be, I would turn to a block. Yeah. Yeah. But she's just like, didn't even want her towel. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't get it, but you're right. Like my son will wear shorts and a t-shirt until it's in the fifties and then that's no problem. Like anything cooler than that. Yeah. I guess, I guess I gotta wear pants. Although I have noticed it's a style of certain kind of sporty, not sporty exactly, but like cargo shorts and Tiva's dad who wears that outfit 11 months out of the year, you know, like cargo shorts and Tiva's dad. You know what I mean? I know there are some people listening that are looking down right now Mm -hmm. at their cargo shorts and Tiva's and they're going, oh, no, am I going to get roasted? No, you're not going to get roasted. I feel like it's certain, you know, it. At some point in a person's life, they transition from what looks good to what is functional. Yeah. And I think kids can be to blame for that for many people. And then like, oh, we're going out to eat. I will will spend the time to actually put together something that's not just purely function. Yeah, I'll put on my cargo pants and and hoodie. Yeah. I don't understand the appeal of cargo shorts or pants. That's never. And like, I, I would imagine if you're in a very specific use scenario, case scenario where you're like, I have lots and lots of things that are mm-hmm. small that I need to keep hmm. physically on me cargo for the duration of this particular mission. Then right, for, I, for a mission, yeah. for a mission, then I feel like you, you need that. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm not, I'm not going to wear a life jacket just around. I'm going to put that on right. if I'm in rough seas and, you know, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> you, know you have a right. reason it's, to put it on. It's, it's mission gear. You, yeah. you have it on for the length to the duration of a mission. That's right. for, That's a great way of putting it. And then you get out of it and you're back to normal and cargo anything I don't think should ever be just daily wear. Well, you know, when I, when I did my long walk, I wore cargo pants uh, because it seemed like I was going to have quite a bit of cargo. That seems appropriate to me. And what it ended up, I, I, you know, and this this may be self evident, but it isn't to the to the eighty five percent of American men that wear cargo pants or cargo shorts. But carrying things in a big pouch in the middle of your thigh is not. That's not where you want to carry things. Mm-hmm. It's. It's the wrong spot. They bang. It bangs against your leg. It's not. That's not. It pulls your pants down. What I carried in my cargo pockets ended up being a handkerchief. Um, what else? Like a like a lightweight compass. Some just some. You can only put very lightweight things there. If you if you put a bottle of water there, it would be. It's not gonna. Your the rhythm of your walk is gonna be screwed up. So. 
I don't know what the military uses them for. I would imagine all the all the things that you would that would be heavy that you would want access to, you'd put on one of those bulletproof vests that have all the little pockets. Maybe put some crackers in there or some tater tots or a snack, yeah, you know, something there you like go. that. Some t- yeah, I think that's those, fine. Those little crackers that come with peanut butter. Yeah, that's exactly what little, I was thinking. With the little, the little plastic red stick that you're supposed to yeah, use as a spreading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cheese. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like putting pockets L- on lunchables. your ankles. <laughs> yeah, lunchables. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do admire those uh, those detectives or uh, you know like ever ready people who carry a, a little pistol strapped to their ankle, that always seems pretty tough. That's like a tough thing. To carry a pistol on your ankle. Yeah, but you don't need cargo pants. You could do that under anything but like the skinny jeans. I think you could fit that. Yeah. Well, that's why I watch out for people in bell bottoms. There's a lot of reasons oh. to watch out for people in bell bottoms, men or women, women, or it doesn't matter. Well, women in bell bottoms, I watch out for for a different another reason, reason yeah. Because mm-hmm. I love bell bottoms on women. I, I think do they're too. Very What's, what is with that? Is it because of when we were born? I mean, they've come back into style twice in recent years. Yeah, and they're great. I mean, maybe not full bells, but you know, like boot cut flare. Or, they call flare. flare. Yeah, flare. Yeah, I just think it's got a lot of flare. I think that's where it probably comes from. I don't know. It's a becoming style. It's very, it's just, uh, I think it, it's, uh, it's attractive, not on everybody, but on a lot of different people. Skinny jeans only look good on a tiny fraction of the population, yeah. myself not included. Right. Because you look like a, you look like a pop, you look like a lollipop in them. That's not, most people don't have legs. Are and you talking about women? Uh, they don't look good. No, no, no. I'm talking, I'm talking just about men. anybody. But men in particular, when yeah. that whole style of like low cut skinny jeans, no, 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 no. If you're 15, maybe. But better than low rise jeans where your underwear sticks out of the top. Mm. But look, this isn't a fashion podcast any more than it's anything else. We don't need to sit and drag everybody for their, for their poor style. What do people do though who are listening to this and they're thinking yeah that's me with the cargo but what's so what's so bad about that i I can see them saying wait a minute what's so wrong what's so bad about these what's so Mm, bad about well like how do you for the person who made the choice to get the cargo shorts or pants in the first place there's already a problem like they already have them you don't wind up with them by accident they don't win them yeah, I feel like there. I feel like the question is. Let me put it back to you. What's so bad about the decline and fall of Western civilization? What's so bad about it? I mean, just speed it. You know, like get on the back right. of that dolphin and ride it to the center of the ocean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you don't care, if you don't care, like sure, we're we're on the way. You know, like even if we all put the brakes on, even if we all started wearing reasonable pants and shoes, there's still a lot of other factors. And I agree with most people like, why not? Why not just, you know, just, just wipe those, that Cheeto dust right on your face. Why even use a napkin? Just wipe it in your hair. Just put the Cheeto dust in your hair. (laughs) Get on the back of that, of that dolphin of decay and ride it. (laughs) I, for one, stand to thwart civilization and yell stop. Um, But that's not, that's a quote that doesn't, uh, that doesn't serve me. Or I mean, it's not it's not what you would expect a guy like me to say, right? Yeah. You would you would think you would think um, that I would have a that I would have a better 
uh, a better quote than that. But I don't. I think it is. I think it is. Um, <sighs> the problem is that that it was William F. Buckley that said that um, that his magazine, The National Review, standed athwart history and yelled stop because it's a very conservative. He was making a joke kind of at the, uh, at the expense of conservatives. But of course he, he also admired the, the mentality, um, stand again, stand athwart history and yell stop because conservatives don't want progress, social progress. Mm -hmm. They don't really want any kind of progress. They want things to be, like they were 10 years ago. And that's been true throughout history, right? If things had just, if things were just like they were not 10 years ago, maybe yeah. 25. And that's not what I want. I don't want things to be like they were 25 or 30 years ago. I'm a, I'm a man of progress. I want people to progress, mm -hmm. but I believe that there is progression. There's also regression. And I think that dressing like a little boy is regressive. You know, like you get to be an adult, you, you take on a new, you take on new responsibilities, your clothes and your, and your attitudes reflect that, you know, you don't just, you don't just pull up and block, uh, the entrance to a parking lot because you're waiting to pick up somebody. Mm -hmm. And then when people pile up trying to, with their blinkers on, trying to get into the parking lot that you're blocking, you don't just sit there and stare straight ahead. Even if you have a nice car, especially if you have a nice car, you don't just sit there because it's not your world. It doesn't belong to you. Move along. But, but everyone's a child now. And it's, and so it's not, it's not progressive. I feel like cargo shorts and t-shirts are conservative, Dan. I think that mm. it feels like a liberal fashion. It feels like, Hey, I'm just a cool dude. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those uptight dudes. But no, you're dressing like a little child. Yeah. Or so you're dressing like a little child who's playing army man. Mm. And that is intrinsically conservative. You want things to be like they were. You want to be 10 years old again. Yeah, sure. And eventually you're going to be somebody that's like, why, whatever, you know, why did things have to get, why are they different than they once were? Yes. That's not me. I want everybody to dress in space clothes. I want them, to, I want us, I was promised that we would be in silver colored Unitar. <laughs> uh -huh. And if you showed up to drop your kid off at the swimming pool and you were wearing like a spacesuit, I would, uh, I would stand and applaud. If you were wearing a spacesuit and some kind of helmet that had like, if you looked like Daft Punk, I would be like, that's the future that I was promised. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and it sounds maybe like that's conservative that I'm, re I'm reflecting back to. 1968's 2001 a space odyssey yeah and so my future is a conservative future but i don't think that's true i think that there are you know all these space fabrics that they sell at rei do you have an rei there yeah we sure do when i was a kid right rei sold all this great mountaineering gear but it was all made out of cotton and wool and i thought that it and it was cool looking and then when gore-tex was invented these Gore-Tex jackets were cool, but they were, they were still kind of cut like they were made out of sailcloth. They were just, they were just made out of Gore-Tex. Well, somewhere along the line, the fabrics all got technological, polypropylene and 
all these fabrics that claim that they wick away sweat. That's one of their favorite things. They wick. They wick somehow, Dan. They wick. Yeah, they, the pull, they pull it out of there. You get it out of there. And yet, they keep you warm. They wick away the sweat, but they keep you warm. So they're better than wool because wool keeps you warm, but it doesn't wick. It wicks nothing. But somehow, because polypropylene, when it first came out, it was used in long underwear, and it, it was all it looked like long underwear. But then, when they started making clothes that you wore that weren't underwear, mm-hmm. they were supposed to just be your shirt. It still looked like long underwear. All they did was put a little Nike logo or something on the on the chest, but it looked, it still looked like underwear to me. And then all of the fabrics at REI became uh, technological fabrics, which that's incredible, right? That everything's wicking now. We're in the future. We're wearing tech fabrics. But what didn't evolve was the style. So. We're wearing tech fabrics, fabrics, but everybody looks like they're in their underwear. You know, uh, and and God bless yoga pants, but they're underwear. Mm-hmm. And God bless your jogging clothes, but they're underwear. Yes. And if you took these technological fabrics and if somebody was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make like a cool unitard with big Elvis collars and, you know, like, but practical, practical Elvis collars that you could zip up and turn into a turtleneck if you, but not a mock turtleneck, like something cool. Make it like, make it funky, boot cut, something, something with a little, something that doesn't look like underwear. And everywhere I go, it's like, you're either dressed like a 10 year old boy playing army man, or you're in your underwear. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a failure. It's a style failure because fashion people, have been in retreat for decades and now they're in this tiny little world where they're making fashions and who cares because all the kids are going to old Navy and buying basically cheap new versions of their mom's clothes. Right. And people like you and me, middle-aged people are just in our underwear or dressed like little kids and old, I don't know, old people, old people are, they still, they still give a try. Some of them, they're the last ones that do. And the and the vast majority of clothes are just cranked out by by like lowest common denominator, like how do we make this the cheapest possible thing? Yeah, absolutely. And the way we do it is it has no defining characteristics. It looks like everything else. It's the same colors of blue and gray and black. It all is. It all looks like underpants, and we sell it because it because it apparently the the fabric is magic, and it does all these magic things. What it the one magical thing it does is the one magical thing it doesn't do is make you look like you're not wearing your underwear in public, let alone on an airplane. But you know, I just I'm at this I'm at this swim club because my daughter's on a swim team, which has been amazing for her. But I'm in the posture where I'm kind of, for the first time maybe, I'm not in an elementary school setting. I'm not picking up or dropping off, which is the major thing you do as a parent, as you know. Yep. You pick up, 
then you have some time. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I always get that mixed up. You drop off. I, you know, I show up. I'm like, I'm right here for pickup. And they're like, it's time for drop off. You drop off. Then you have some time. Then you pick up. And that's what your, that's what your life is. But now I, I want to go to her swim practices. So I sit there in the bleachers and I look around and the other parents are all sitting there looking at their phones because the hour of swim practice isn't long enough for them to go do something. And so I'm studying them. I'm like, okay, you are the, you're the parents of other people. You're the other people. You're the other people. Who are you? Who are, who are the kids that are on this one team? And the kids are all great. They're just kids. They're all funny and, and weird, but their parents aren't funny or weird. <laughs> their parents are just dull, dull. They're drags. And I don't, you know, I, who knows what they, what they see when they look at me. They're like, does that guy cut his own hair? They probably don't even, they don't even put that much thought into no, it. I'm sure they don't. They're just like, ugh. How did the how did the valet get in here? No, they don't think that. I don't no, look like I don't, a, they don't look like a valet. I like that you put a little accent on valet, Dan. What was that? Valet. Said, valet. No, va- va- valet. Valet. I don't think they think that. No. Who knows what? Who cares what they think? It's me. It's. I was having a conversation with someone, a friend of the show who's on uh who's part of the community on my Patreon and she was saying because I was like eh, oh she asked you know are you uh, judgmental and I was like I'm very I would never judge you if you were having an affair I would barely judge you really if you embezzled money from your company I don't judge you based on who you vote for. Like I'm not judgmental that way, but I do judge my, the whole way I look at life is I, I see a thing and I put it on one side of a scale and I weigh it against something else. Is this, is this preferable to that? Is this, is this, uh, is this good relative to evil? And I mean, even if you're embezzling money from your company, I'd like to hear why, right? Before I put it on the scale, tell me why you're embezzling money before I determine whether or not you're a, you're an agent of evil, but I'm judging all the time. Am I judgmental? Yeah. You would have to say I was because, because every person that walks by, I'm like, those shoes, those are the shoes that you picked this morning. Wow. Tell me more. So it's ju- it's judgy, I guess. Yeah. But but if you were like, yeah, I've been having an affair for the last uh, eight years with my secretary, I think I would have the same. I would say, tell me more. What's going on with you? Like, where's that coming from? I wouldn't automatically say, oh, oh, you voted for Richard Nixon. Well, you're on the wrong side of history. Although, if you don't have a pretty good explanation, I would. I learned yesterday. That my uncle Cal was tapped by Richard Nixon to head the Security and Exchange Commission. No kidding. He was going to be a big job. It was. He was going to be the head of the SEC for Nixon. And then he got embroiled in some political shenanigans, and he had one of these 
candidacies that just lingered on and on and on. You know, there was, and I don't, I didn't read in this article. I, I, I was inspired to go read this article because I went to a baseball game yesterday because Maria Semple, uh, my friend Maria was throwing out the first pitch at a Mariners game. The Mariners were playing the Yankees and she was throwing out the first pitch. She's a writer. She, she wrote, where'd you go Bernadette? And so in that sense, you know, she's, she's a Seattle literary celebrity. And so a small group of us went to, and she's throwing out the first pitch. Well, she throws it out. She does a good job. And then I'm sitting in this group of people, most of whom I know, but there are a few people I don't. And we're all kind of switching around seats. You know, we've got a little group. So you sit somewhere and then you move, you sit somewhere else. You talk to, you talk to all the different people in the course of the game. Cause baseball games, as you know, are very long. And if you don't find a way to make it social, I mean, you can sit and score the game right. like a weirdo, or yeah. you can be, so you go get a hot dog. You know, it's a time you're having a time. Well, I sit next to this guy and he's a, he's a gregarious preppy guy. Um, you know, he, he, uh, he communicates in every aspect that he has money. If you look at, if you look at, uh, this fellow and his wife sitting next to him, you go, Oh, you people have money, but he's fun. He's a fun guy with money. And we're about the same age, although he has money. So people with money look different. They look like a different age. You know, he doesn't look younger or older than me. He just looks like, huh, like from a different place. And we're talking and we're having fun. We're talking about, he's, he goes to bring a trailer like I do. So all of a sudden we're talking about cars. Then we're talking about ba ba da ba da It turns into, oh, you know, Seattle. So what's your Seattle story? Oh, we live in this neighborhood. And as soon as he says his neighborhood, I'm like, oh, you have money. And then I say, what's your, what street do you live on? And he says the street and it's like, Oh, the money street. He lives on, he lives on money street, USA, <laughs> but he's, you know, he's being casual about it. It's like somebody that goes to Harvard and, and they're, or MIT and they're like, Oh yeah, I go to school in Boston. And you think Boston college? No, no. Across the river. So, so which one, uh, like, Boston, uh, community college. And they're like, no. And you're like, yeah, I know you go to Harvard. Just say it or went to Harvard. Anyway, we're talking, we're chatting. He just bought a car and bring a trailer. They're delivering it later. It's a BMW 2002, an old 2002, a cute car, not a very expensive sports car. It's not like he bought a Maserati from the sixties. Right. So it seemed like a humble kind of, oh, that's great. You bought a car and bring a trailer. I've always wanted to do that. Some cute little sports car. And we're talking, we're talking, we're talking. And somehow it's like, well, how long have your people been in Seattle? Which is a, which is a favorite topic of people. And then he says, well, you know, my, you know, my family was kind of involved in timber, in the timber industry. And I, of course I perk up because my family was in timber and I go, what's tell me more about that. And he says, well, you know, we were, we were deep in the timber business in Canada. And I say, 
Well, now, wait a minute. My uncle was the CEO of Macmillan Bloedel, Canada's largest um, timber company. And the guy, his eyes go wide and he says, Cal Knutson? And I said, yes, <laughs> that is my uncle. How do you know that? And then I realized his name, his last name is Ketchum. And I hadn't put it together. Oh, from Pokemon. Said, yeah. No, a different one. Oh. The Sam Ketchum, the old Sam Ketchum, was like a Canada timber baron. An American who went up to Canada with his brothers and, and made a fortune. But I know the Ketchums well because the Ketchums and the Knutsons were very close. And I said, wait a minute, you're Sam Ketchum? Are you the son of Janet Ketchum? And he says, yes. And it turns out, oh my God, we're almost cousins. That's crazy. Because Janet Ketchum, after her husband, her husband died tragically in a plane crash, and my uncle Cal's wife died in the 90s, and the two of them were very close. And I think they were in love, but they couldn't acknowledge it somehow. Forbidden love. Some weird rich people problem. And I think they may have been in love before they each married their respective spouses. I think they might've been in love in the 1940s, but fate intervened. And so here I am talking to Sam Ketchum. He's the same age as me. His mother and my uncle had this kind of storied relationship. And we've been at the same parties for our whole lives. We were at the same parties when we were five years old. We never made a connection. I never looked at him at one of these parties and said, well, there's a kid my age. Why aren't I talking to him? Right. And part of it was they had money. My uncle had money. My cousins had money, but I was from the side of the family that didn't have money. And if you look at me, you don't think, oh, that guy's got money. Right. Right. It's a, it's a look, you know, it's a look that you always had money. And so I might've looked across the room at these parties and I saw a kid across the room that looked like me and, uh, and he had money. And so I didn't know what age he was. Who knows? He might be a, he might be only five feet tall, but he's 40 years old. So we're sitting and we're chatting, we're talking about our, our relatives and we're talking, you know, we're all, we're both like, Oh my God, you know, cause we, he's asking about my cousins and he knows them intimately. Wow. So all of a sudden we're talking very intimately, like what was, you know, whatever happened to David? Well, you know, he was, he, I always thought he was very sad. Well, he was, you know, his father and his, we're, it got really like down, we're down buzz, buzz, buzz about it. Right. So I was inspired to go home at night and, and read up on these two people. I, I Googled Janet Ketchum. I Googled my uncle Cal and I read these various articles and I came upon this article in the New York times that was talking about Cal having been tapped to head the sec. This is not a story I'd ever heard. And Cal was always a Republican. He drove my dad crazy because he and my dad were super close, but they were politically completely opposed. Mm. And all of a sudden I realized that Cal was going to be in the Nixon administration, the Nixon administration where uh, a thing that my father fought against with a flaming sword. (laughs) 
And the only reason he didn't is some political machinations. And by the time uh, it was time to for him to get the job, they gave it – it was some pork belly thing or pork barrel thing, sorry. They gave it to some guy who was then almost immediately indicted as part of the Watergate conspiracy <laughs> and, you know, Great. retired in disgrace. So Cal somehow dodged a bullet there. And I'm reading this interview that he gave at the time. And, oh, my God, in this interview, he's so chatty and he's so just like he's he's about my age now in this interview. But he's been appointed to as the CEO of this company that's got 20,000 employees. And he's talking about business reform. And he wants everybody at the company to call him Cal instead of Herr Knutson or whatever. And the New York Times is like, it's a new style of business. You know, the old guard. No one could even see them. They walked, they walked in through a, a gilded tunnel. And if you even caught a glimpse of the CEO, you were, you were banished to an island. Right. And now this young guy, this young revolutionary, he's streamlining the process. And, and it talks about he, in, he puts together an open office plan. Oh, my God. He wants all of, the, all of the executives to work on the same floor where they can – collaborate. He wants everybody to call him Cal. And this is not the man I knew. Right. Cal Knutson that, that I grew up with, which would have been these same years. Cal, uh, at every party, he stood in the kitchen with a, with a, uh, towel over his shoulder and a wooden spoon in his hand, stirring some sauce that's in a Le Creuset pot. And that was his safe place. My aunt was the entertainer party, a bunch of people in the house, everybody, but my aunt flitting around and Cal in the kitchen, stirring this pot with a, with a, a little, um, napkin over his shoulder, some kind of, you know, chefy thing. Yeah. And if you talk to him, he would give you a one or two word answer. And throughout my life, every once in a while, I would go to Uncle Cal and I would say, hey, give me some advice. You know, I've, I'm in this situation. You know, I'm wondering whether I should go this way or that way. And he would say, well, John, you got to just do what you think is right. And I would say, that is not advice. Like that, <laughs> that is, you are giving the least amount of effort. I am your nephew. And he would say, well, you know, do, do what you can. Gave me zero advice in, uh -huh. in, in my entire life. And I later, many years later, was talking to his youngest son. And I said, you know, I tried to get advice from your dad, and he never gave me a single piece of advice. And his son leaned forward and said, he never gave me any advice either. And we both sat there and kind of rued the tragedy. Right. But in this article, he's giving everybody in America advice. Maybe and he was too. so sick of doing that that you know he couldn't do it in his in his personal. The shoemakers' uh, shoe children have no shoes, or something like that. Uh, the children, the shoemakers' the children. Thing, isn't that what they say? No sh <clears throat> <laughs> the shoemakers' children. That's who we are. Yeah, yeah. And I was double, triple the shoemakers' children. Right. I was the shoemakers' children's cousin. That's who I was. <laughs> Right, so there's no chance that you're getting any 
decent advice from that. Didn't get a single bit of advice. Oh, and one time I was, I had a wild hair. I was going to start, I think I might've read that, uh, Saturday night live oral history book, Mm. which I thought was really a great book. And I got it into my mind. I was going to do some oral histories and I called my uncle Cal and I said, Hey, you know, you worked in the timber industry in its heyday here in, in the West. You worked for Weyerhaeuser, McMillan Bloedel. You had all these, you know, he got his start, bought some rinky dink plywood company in Aberdeen, Washington. Um, I was like, you know, do you mind if I interview you about all this stuff? And Cal said, Oh, I don't remember anything. I would, and he, he didn't quite have a mid Atlantic accent, but close. Mm. Like his natural, his natural way of speaking would be mid Atlantic transatlantic. He's, uh, you know, he's a Scandahoovian who grew up in, Washington kind mm. of like country, mm. but he went to law school, you know, he, he lifted himself up from his, by his bootstraps. So there's that mid Atlantic, you know, come of age in 1940 when mid Atlantic was the way, uh, proper people talked. Yeah. And I think he picked it up, but also he had that Scandinavian sort of laconic why say two words if one will do Mm -hmm. but he said i don't remember anything and i said you were there it's you're one of the you know you were witness to history come on and he's like oh i hardly you know i hardly remember anything but good luck with your book i was like "Ah, come on god he wouldn't give you anything nothing Nothing. He would, you know, he gave the New York times more. He gave New York times more in one article in 1972 than he gave me in my whole life. I mean, what he taught me to do was he taught me how to cook mushrooms. Okay. And I didn't know how to cook mushrooms when I went in to that conversation and I came out knowing how, and as far as I know, no one else in my life ever tried to teach me how to cook mushrooms because I don't think they knew how. Cal had a way. He had a way with mushrooms. Is it hard to cook mushrooms? No. You just have to, you just have to have a little, you know, you have to have a pan full of butter. The secret, Cal's secret was he quartered the mushrooms. He didn't slice them. Okay. He said, don't slice them. And you know, he's one of these people that says never, never wash them. You just, you have a, you have a special brush. Oh yeah. Sure. Sure. You brush them. But you don't, you don't wash them. Also, because well, like water do. is the enemy of a of yeah. a mushroom or something like yeah. that, right? Water water makes them slimy. Yeah, but so he quartered them on the top, you know, turned them into little pie slices, and then you throw them in the pan of butter. And I thought when I first saw it, I was like, "Well, that's too. You don't want a you don't want a big chunk of mushroom." But it turns out you do. You do. It turns out that's the way. Uncle Cal's quartered mushroom trick. Huh. He actually went on to to own a mushroom company. Really? He did. Ostrom's Mushrooms. He picked that instead of the Nixon thing? No, he did the timber thing. But then at a certain point in his life, he became one of these people that just is on the board of directors of things. Oh, yeah. 
you're like, you know, anytime my dad would pick up the newspaper and go, this company is behaving irresponsibly. Uncle Cal would go, I'm on the board. (laughs) And then they would argue. They would argue, except Cal always, you know, Cal would go back and stir the pot with his, with his wooden spoon. Now that I'm thinking about it, even if there were only four people in the room, Cal was stirring a pot with a wooden spoon. Mm. He never just sat with his, you know, with his one leg crossed over the other and talked about business. Cause I think, you know, I think business was, was his, his private world. Weirdly, you would think that would be his public world, but that was his private world. Well, but his, his private world wasn't his public world beats me. I'll never understand him. I never, you know, it's too late now. They're all, that whole generation's dead. There's no understanding any of them any better than I do. Oh, I guess, except for having read this article. It's interesting though that the article is what would provide you with the insight into your own family member. You know what I'm saying? Well, another thing Late in life, in his garage, this New York Times article was in a frame, and it was hanging in the garage. And it was hanging in the garage with a with a variety of other newspaper articles that were all ha- all framed and hanging in the garage. And I suspect that they were framed and had formerly been hanging in his office somewhere. And when he moved out of that office, these things all ended up in a box and someone came and hung them up in the garage. Right. You should display these. Yeah, but he doesn't want to, there's no place in the house for them, but he put them up in the garage. And I remember walking past and reading the headlines many, many times of the articles, but I never stood and read them all the way through. Or if I did, I didn't. You know, it was at a time when I wouldn't have, um, it wouldn't have made a major impression on me because the man himself was standing on the other side of the door. Right. But, uh, but also I was never encouraged to loiter. When you were at Uncle Cal and Aunt Julie Lee's house, you weren't encouraged to loiter. You were on your way to somewhere in the house. And once you were there, you would, you would be stationed there. Hmm. But this guy, you know, Sam Ketchum, he know he knew he knew those people very well. He said, "Oh, your Aunt Julie Lee, you know, I loved her very much, but she always used to scare the shit out of me." And I said, "She scared the shit out of me." I don't even know if I would say I loved her very much. I would say I would put scared the shit out of me up above loved her very much. What was scary about her? Oh, well, she was ferocious. I mean, she was one of three. My dad was the oldest. Mm-hmm. Julia Lee was in the middle and my uncle Jack was the youngest. And her father's family were Welsh immigrants. So her father, my grandfather was second generation from Wales. His parents had come from Wales, but he had presented himself in the world. He went to Worcester college in Ohio and he picked up all these manners from the from the rich Presbyterians that went to Worcester. And then he went off to World War I. 
And in the course of going off to World War I, he reinvented himself. So when he was in France during the war, he'd had this education and he kind of transformed himself. He was no longer the son of Welsh coal miners. He was now this um, erudite. And in, in fact, he changed his story so much that he told people he was from Scotland. He was with these Presbyterians and they were all Scots and he became a Scotsman. That's how you mean like he like got citizenship, like changed. No, his- no, no. He never went to Scotland. He just <laughs> started telling people he was. Oh, from Scotland. Oh. oh, our family is from Scotland and people in America couldn't tell a Roderick from a, from an O Roderick. <laughs> And so, you know, people, I guess, bought it. Although, uh, my sense Why would you it, doubt I, that? Why would you doubt it, though? Like, if, if one of your friends, like, well, maybe maybe you would because you're interested in this kind of thing. But for the average person, you say, oh, I'm Scottish. Like, they're going to be like, oh, that's cool. Well, except that in America, in, and in American, like, in, in society in America, back then, 1915, mm-hmm. People cared about where you were from. Yeah, that, you're right. That mattered a lot. Yeah, you know? yeah. But he reinvented himself, and my grandmother went to France in World War One to sing for the troops. She had studied opera in Paris before the war, and so she went back to France to sing operatically and play piano for the troops as part of a proto uso pre pre uso kind of you know she was squired around in an open car and went various places and sang for the troops and my grandfather was a lieutenant and they met somewhere along the way and if you read my grandmother's autobiography she, to hear her tell it you know every general in the army was trying to woo her general <laughs> pershing would come by and you know, and brought her an elegant fan from, from the Orient. But of all of the, of all of the wonderful officers who had, um, with whom she had danced the night away, the, the one she picked to marry was Lieutenant Roderick. And, um, my grandmother came from people who had come from the South after the civil war, they'd moved out West because they'd lost everything in the civil war because they were on the wrong side. Oh, right. And at the end of the war, all of their fortune and all of their land and everything, you know, that they had built on the backs of, um, slave labor and of, you know, a plantation culture in Kentucky all got taken away by the new, the, the new Northern regime. And so the sons, the sons of that generation moved west and came out here and and retained a kind of white russian sense of themselves as displaced aristocrats they didn't have anything but they believed that they were from an, they were elevated people they were from a they were from good stock as they mm-hmm. said and they were from people who had come to America in the 1600s, you know, they, they had multiple ways to trace themselves back to the very earliest days. And so they had all this, 
this extra presumption heirs. They had a lot of heirs. Mm. So my grandmother who had studied in Paris before the war and had a self image of herself as a Southern aristocrat met my grandfather who was posing as a Scottish um, intellectual and, you know, and, and culture, man of culture, Shakespeare quoting elegant young officer. Mm-hmm. My sense is they bamboozled one another in Paris. They convinced one another that each had, each was the, uh, was their secret ticket. My grandmother thought that, oh, this dashing young officer would, is the perfect mate and she'll be able to reclaim some of the family's glory by, um, by marrying this, um, this dashing Errol Flynn. (laughs) And he thought, oh, she comes from money and culture and power and I'll marry into this family and then I'll be, um. You know, then my aspirational American story, my family will have in, in two short generations gone from mining coal in, in, uh, Cardiff to this, this, you know, ball gowns and Parisian so-and-sos and they bamboozled one another because neither of them had a goddamn thing. And I think it was only maybe two years into their marriage that that anybody realized, wait a minute, neither of you have any uh, money or (laughs) any of the skills that would be necessary to earn money. Right. So, and you know, and, and my grandmother's older brother married the heiress to the Buster Brown shoe fortune. Oh my God. And he actually moved back to Connecticut and they lived in a big waterfront home and he had fulfilled the, uh, had fulfilled the, his family's destiny and had been reinstated as a Yankee, uh, burger, you know, a prosperous Yankee merchant, although married into, but, but my grandmother had, uh, tripped along the way and had married this Welsh pretender. I'm not even sure she ever knew he was Welsh Hmm. because I think at the time the Scots were long enough established in America that at least you could feel like some of them had read a book other than the Bible. Not all of them. Not most of them, but some of them. But the Welsh had nothing to recommend themselves. They were seen as a, you know, as a hard, crappy, hard scrabble immigrants with dirty faces. Mm. They barely had letters. And I'm I am convinced that 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 my grandmother never knew he was from Wales. But he became an alcoholic. He became a wastrel. And she ended up supporting my dad and his siblings as a music teacher. Mm, That's hard. Well, but she maintained her heirs throughout. 
because her parents had built a big house in Seattle in, in the, in the nice neighborhood because they had done, you know, my great grandfather had done the thing where he was, they were all lawyers. They got law degrees at, you know, some college on the, in, in uh, Kansas city and came out here and sort of Seattle was so new. It was kind of like Alaska in the fifties. You could just sort of waltz in and say, I'm a judge. No, I'm a banker. And people would say, well, here's a bank. <laughs> um, and so they were prosperous enough, you know. But of the three children of my grandmother and grandfather, my dad, my aunt and uncle, only my aunt, Julia Lee, understood that what really needed to happen here was that somebody have money. Mm-hmm. And Cal Knutson in law school, you know, he had a humble origin story. He'd grown up on a strawberry farm. But my aunt, Julia Lee, saw something in him. Uh, a, uh, an innate desire to prosper. Mm. And the two of them joined forces. And I think their contract, even when they were 22, was you go to work and kill it and I will handle everything else. So you never need to worry and you don't need to worry about our social station. You don't need to worry about, um, the art we buy or the, the pattern on the couch or our friends or what's on the record player. You just go do what you want to You, you go practice the law and, and, you know, become a business murderer, which he did. And so by the time I was born, they were prominent people and their money enabled them to enable Julie Lee to retcon. Oh, the whole history, the whole history. Yeah. So all of a sudden her father was a Scottish prince and her mother was a, a Southern aristocrat. Mm. Because, you know, Julia Lee had taste. And a lot of that was, I think, from my great aunt, Marguerite, who actually, like, had taste. Right. So Julia Lee was able to, you know, everything everything that Julia Lee touched was made perfect. Mm-hmm. And in fact, her catchphrase, her signature line was she would look at something and she would go, perfect. <laughs> with this long purr and she would actually purr it perfect. Mm. And if you got a perfect from Angie Lee, you know, it was like getting a, not an Olympic medal, but certainly like a high school track and field blue ribbon. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. I didn't get it very often. Perfect. But she was fierce and scary because she was looking for perfect in everything. And I was not perfect. Right. I was always a scruffy ragamuffin who had been raised by, I mean, my father was the, was the prince of all of them, but my dad was a socialist. His response to his mother's, um, aristocratic racist heirs was to become a, 
a radical civil rights lawyer, union agitator, socialist uh, legislator, and general, like major thorn in everybody's side, except he was the prince. They all loved him. He was the, he was the scion of the whole clan, the, the, the oldest boy. So they forgave him everything. And his socialism and his radicalism were just, you know, considered eccentricities and they were just sort of, you know, they're confused. They were confused. And, you know, my father renounced his membership in the tennis club because they wouldn't allow Jews. And my father was, you know, in the newspapers all the time because he was down on the docks trying to unionize the stevedores and all that, you know, he was just not playing along with the narrative. So what they did was they blamed my mother who was considered socially uh, not up to their standards because my mother had come from Ohio and had been oh, raised right. on a farm. And so I was a scruffy ragamuffin, not because my father was a, you know, was a scruffy ragamuffin, let's be honest. No, it was because my industrious farmer mother was not sufficiently steeped in the legends of the United States. And what they didn't realize, because they never bothered to find out, was that my mother's people had come to America before they had, mm. you know, the... Rochester's rolled in here in 1640, but my mom's people were here in 1617. Mm -hmm. But my mom didn't, you know, wouldn't play that Daughters of the American Revolution game with them. And so they, you know, they looked down upon her. And by, by association, looked down on me. Because yeah, I, I don't was... don't see how it would have been possible for you to escape that. No, 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 no. No, because every time I, I used the wrong fork, I knew which fork to use, but every time I held it wrong, um, every time I walked, uh, every time I, you know, slouched or walked through a wedding reception with a toothpick in my mouth or whatever <laughs> it was, um, there was always somebody to, you know, not to grab me by the arm and say, don't do that, but to sort of you know, look over the, their nose at me and go, well, it's his mother. Mm. It's his mother that didn't treat him, that didn't teach him right. And, you know, my mother had no heirs, none, because her version of, of, uh, you know, her Pennsylvania Dutch kind of Quaker mentality was um, the absolute sparest aesthetic. You know, the, the Quaker religious ceremonies are everybody goes and sits on a hard wooden bench in an uninsulated room and no one talks oh. until, until, until someone, until God taps them on the shoulder and says, you have something to say. You have something to say about you I remember know, the, learning about that when I was a kid. Yeah. I went to, I went to a Quaker service in Philadelphia one time. Yeah. This sounds like really familiar to me. Sat in a, sat in a big Quaker church, which, which looked like it had been basically carved. Right. 
you know, all the, all the lumber had been, someone started with a tree and a hatchet. And at the end they had a, they had a, a, I mean, a beautiful building. Yeah. And I sat on this hard bench with, with the, the friends who brought me and we all sat in silence, hundreds of people until someone stood up and said, we're having a bake sale or whatever. I don't remember. I don't remember what the hell they talk. I mean, eventually people stood up and talked, but I mean, nobody had, there was nothing evangelical about it. No. It was, you know, somebody would stand up and say, the humble butterfly shall be an example to us all. And people were, hmm, 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 But that was my mom. She had no, there was nothing classist about her. There remains nothing classist about her. And I think my grandmother's family, all they had was classism. Uh, I mean, and, and racism. I mean, the two, the two nest neatly. 